Chapter Thirty One, Part One of Margaret Sanger by Margaret Sanger. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty One, Part One Great Heights Are Hazardous. Quote, Professor East, though you may try, you fail to rouse my fears. For I don't dream that even I will live a hundred years. But do not think I view with mirth five billion folk assorted, five billion tightly packed on earth who cannot be supported. South African Review At the conclusion of the New York Conference, I thought that I was never going to have anything to do with organizing another but hardly more than a few months had gone by before my mind was dwelling on one to be centered around overpopulation as a cause of war. From the statements of Keynes and the specialists of the League of Nations, and from the status of the countries of Europe, it was inferred that international peace could in no way be made secure until measures had been put into effect to deal with explosive populations. Between 1800 and 1900, the inhabitants of the world doubled in spite of bloody wars, thus proving they were only temporary checks. For every hundred thousand babies who died between dawn and dawn, Professor East estimated that one hundred and fifty thousand were born. These fifty thousand survivors contributed to the globe in twenty years a horde almost equal to India's three hundred and seventy-five million. In the United States, numerically speaking, Overpopulation was not of apparent importance. We still had unoccupied lands. But evidence that we were beginning to consider the quality of our citizens as well as the quantity was shown in our immigration laws. In 1907, we had barred aliens with mental, physical, communicable, or loathsome diseases, and also illiterate paupers, prostitutes, criminals, and the feeble-minded. Had these precautions been taken earlier, our institutions would not now be crowded with moronic mothers, daughters, and granddaughters, three generations at a time, all of whom have to be supported by taxpayers who shut their eyes to this condition, admittedly detrimental to the bloodstream of the race. Then, our sudden closing of the doors in 1924, by placing the world on a quota, threw Europe's surplus population back on herself. Italy had to face this problem, as Germany had had to do in 1914. At the Institute of Politics in Williamstown, Massachusetts, in the summer of 1925, Count Antonio Cipico, fascist senator, virtually demanded that, to make room for her explosive expansion, Italy be allowed to export her half-million annual increase to foreign lands. 
Professor East answered him, asking Italy first to put her house in order, and setting forth with clarity the inexorable results of spawning children on the world with haphazard recklessness. But she had no intention of doing so. Shortly afterwards, Mussolini outlined his plan. If Italy is to amount to anything, it must enter into the second half of this century with at least 60 million. Japan and Germany, as well as Italy, were already called danger spots in 1925. Japan's goal was 100 million. Gearing was soon to say, the territory in which the Germans live is too small for our 66 million inhabitants and will be too small for the 90 million which we want to become. The three military countries were pleading with their women to bear more children, offering as inducements medals, money, lands. They claimed the right of expansion because they were too crowded at home and were at the same time increasing their peoples in order to promote successful wars. Populations can fall into a semi-starved state of inertia, such as that of India or China, unless they are aggressive. They have a choice of three courses, to lower the standards of living to the bare subsistence level, to control the birth rate, or to reach out for colonies, as Great Britain has done. While we had been holding our conference in London in 1922, I had met at one of Major Putnam's luncheons the very reverend gloomy Dean Inge, except that he was not gloomy at all. He was full of mischief. In his late fifties, tall, thin as an exclamation point, quite deaf, he reminded me of a Dickens character. He had commented in his usual pungent style on the real meaning of the right to expand. It is a pleasant prospect if every nation with a high birth rate has a right to exterminate its neighbors. The supposed duty of multiplication and the alleged right to expand are among the chief causes of modern war. And I repeat that if they justify war, it must be a war of extermination, since mere conquest does nothing to solve the problem. I was still of the opinion in 1925 that the League of Nations should include birth control in its program and proclaim that increase in numbers was not to be regarded as a justifiable reason for national expansion, but that each nation should limit its inhabitants to its resources as a fundamental principle of international peace. On the other hand, it was all very well to say, cut down your numbers, but how could this be done if scientific and medical development lagged so far behind that few knew how to do it? Building up huge populations by following the way of nature was fairly simple, but it was by no means simple to reduce them again voluntarily. 
no long-range program was possible until economists, sociologists, and biologists alike should garner and contribute facts to the solution. Therefore, the occasion was now ripe for the attention of the scientific world to be focused on the population question. I planned to bring them together at Geneva, the logical meeting place. Dr. Little, who had accepted the presidency for the next International Birth Control Conference, had gone to the University of Michigan as its president. He had no time for organizing, raising money, getting speakers. If this lengthy job of organizing the World Population Conference were to be done, I should have to do it. So great was the competition between the League of Nations and other groups desiring to hold conventions at Geneva during its sessions that you had to book an auditorium and rooms for delegates practically twelve months ahead. Consequently, towards the end of 1926, I went to Geneva to make arrangements for an expected 300 guests. I had previously become acquainted with several Genovese. William Rappard, then a professor at the university there, consented to go on our committee and advise me on social details with which only a native would be familiar. More vital to me was the labor office of the League, where it was not a matter of politics, but of industrial problems thrashed out by people chosen for their special knowledge. Here I met Albert Thomas, a strange-looking person, short, stocky, with black beard sprouting over his face, very talkative, amazing in his energy, traveling over Europe by night, arriving in Geneva in the morning, conducting his business affairs, making speeches. But with all this activity, he managed to spare hours enough to help me immeasurably when I consulted him on subjects, persons, locations, and dates. The Salle Centrale was engaged for three days, August 30th to September 2nd of the next year, 1927. Back I went to London to enlist an English committee. Clinton Chance became my husband's assistant in supervising finances and also provided London headquarters in his offices, supplying stenographers and secretaries. Edith Howe Martin joined us, and I secured the invaluable aid of Julian Huxley, brother of Aldous a brilliant, young, enthusiastic scientist, alive and having a mind that not only took things in, but gave them out. The conference owed much to his fair and just opinions, and the fine supporters he rounded up. Together we went over names and names and names, trying to choose a chairman of sufficient distinction around whom European scientists would rally. Professor A. M. Carr Saunders at first accepted, but a month and a half later informed me his other obligations were so heavy he would have to limit his participation to membership on the council. 
After weeks of uncertainty, interviews, and rejections, we selected Sir Bernard Mallet, K.C.B., once of the Foreign Office, Treasury, Board of Inland Revenue, later Registrar General of Births, Deaths, and Marriages, and President of the Royal Statistical Society. Although very English, he was not too conservative. He knew well Sir Eric Drummond, then head of the League of Nations, and also had many friends on the continent, particularly in Italy. He was typical of an individual who had climbed far, who knew where he was going and the road by which he should travel. Bored at being now in retirement, he accepted our offer willingly, because although no salary was attached, it would give him a position and an interest, and keep him socially in touch with noteworthy figures. Lady Mallet's previous experience as lady-in-waiting to Queen Victoria made her an expert hostess, and this, too, we needed. Once I had to make an expedition all the way to Edinburgh to seek out Dr. F. A. E. Crewe, a shining light among the younger biologists, who was making hens crow and roosters lay eggs. He readily agreed to come to the conference, and during the two days I visited him, helped me build up my program. I also wanted a paper read by André Siegfried, author of America Comes of Age, written after journeying some six weeks through the United States. When he invited me to tea at his home in Paris, I found him in appearance more like a mixture of American and English than French. But you could feel from his attitude and deduce from his conversation that he really envied, despised, hated Americans. By invading France with our wealth and vulgarity, we had utterly spoiled it for his compatriots. Appreciating good food, which we never had at home, we squandered enormously four or five times what they did. The same was true of wine. We were drinking their best, paying high for it without being able to tell the difference when we were given cheap vintages. Consequently, the Parisians were being shut out of Paris because they could not afford the prices. I don't see how you can blame the Americans for coming over and paying what you French ask, I replied. You might have a complaint, perhaps, if we tried to undersell you or refused to buy, but it seems to me you are profiting considerably by this outrageous intrusion of the American dollar. Although we did not get on very well, and although he would not read a paper, he consented to attend. Some of the preliminaries having been set, my husband took a villa at Cap d'Ay, between Nice and Monte Carlo, and near enough to Geneva, Paris, and London for trips whenever necessary. From my room the sunrise was incredibly vivid, reds and yellows, mixed with the glorious blue of the Mediterranean. But it was not warm. H.G., who had a villa at Grasse, 
said the Riviera reputation for summer heat and wintertide was a fraud. We used to drive up to see him. The flowers for the perfume manufactories grew thick on the hillsides, so thick that the air for miles around was fragrant. Occasionally we picnicked in the tiny village on top of the mountain of Ez, a favorite haunt of artists. Once the old castle had belonged to robber barons, who could see for miles the approach of a ship. Now the elder Mrs. O. P. Belmont had a palatial residence there. The Riviera was always a mecca for English people wanting to escape their own cold and fog and damp, and our eight guest rooms were full most of the time. It was quite novel for me to manage a household in French. We had the traditional bad luck of Americans. The maids stole from the guests, and the hot water boiler only held ten gallons. Not a person could have a good bath until a modern one was installed. My first cook was an expert in her field, but I soon found she was running over in her bills even allowing for the customary perquisite of a sow for each franc she spent with the butcher and the greengrocer. Eggs and butter were on the list every day, but never how many eggs nor how much butter. I laid the responsibility on my own bad French before I discovered it was her understanding of Americans. Then and there, I told her she had to leave the following day immediately after breakfast. She received this ultimatum with tears and wailing. Somewhat uneasy, I rose early at seven, only to find she had gone late the preceding night, taking with her every scrap of food in the pantry and storeroom except the salt. On one of my frequent flittings to London, I went to a hairdresser's shop, unfamiliar to me, but carrying the insignia of reliability, by appointment to Her Majesty. I was to return to Cap Dye in a few days, and wished to appear with a wave in my hair, which I wore mid-Victorian, very sweet and simple. After washing it, the coiffeur put an iron on a little gas arrangement in the window nearby and left the room while it was drying, floating out in the wind. Meanwhile, I meditated on the subject of hair. The story of Samson seemed to have been more than an allegorical tale. I could tell from the way mine acted on being brushed in the morning how I myself was going to be. If it were strong and electric, then I was full of vitality. When slumped over my forehead so that it had to be tied down, then I dragged about spiritlessly. It was also interesting to analyze why a woman should wear her hair in a certain style. I knew some who, at the age of sixty, curled theirs in baby ringlets. Doubtless, something within them wanted never to grow up. Women who had gone into the underground movement in Russia took the shears to theirs so that nothing should divert the attention to feminine appeal. I was not enough of a feminist to sacrifice mine, but I had once come to the conclusion 
that the triumph of life would be to push it straight back from my forehead and tie it in a knot behind, because that was how people thought I looked. But I could not do it. No matter what was said about your feet or your figure, you could at least show your hair, in front of hats, down your back, everywhere. And so I had clung tenaciously to my long locks. At this point in my musings, I smelled something burning and turned around to find half my hair singed off to my ear. I gave one shriek and the whole staff rushed in, but it was too late. It all had to be cut short and I actually wept. As soon as I reached Paris, I had what was left done up like a switch so that I could put it on if I felt too badly. I kept it in a box, all ready in case my husband did not want me without my hair. Eventually, I had to face his disapproval. I appeared for dinner. Nothing was said. Although internally amused, the guests maintained grave faces, waiting for him to notice it. Not until next morning did he do so. My own attitude had changed overnight. Never did I want to return to long hair. During early spring, just when it was beginning to be most beautiful, I could spend little time at Cap Dye. Permanent headquarters were established in April at Geneva, four airy, spacious rooms up two flights. I had expected Edith Howe Martin to be with me, but she came down with scarlet fever in London. It was a complication to do without her until Mrs. Marjorie Martin, who had organized a pool of stenographers, secretaries, and typists at the Labor Bureau, furnished us with a most competent and experienced office staff of seventeen. At 4.30, our large reception room was transformed into a living room where all the employees and volunteers gathered. Each, in turn, provided cakes, brewed the tea, and washed up afterwards. One evening, at a quarter to seven, some good Americans stopped in, and seeing everybody smiling and cheerful, though still at work, asked, Will you tell me what magic you women use to create this atmosphere? You've been at it since seven this morning. The answer was, tea at 4.30. I liked being in Geneva, neat and clean and filled with watch shops. I did not even mind the great numbers of people in solemn black clothes. If anyone died in this Calvinist city... The family wore full mourning for one year, and half for the following. In large families, the process became almost perpetual. I was not stimulated by the League sittings. There was much reading of papers and a lot of noise, but no breathless excitement during the debates. Instead, the members talked in small groups, looking very bored, the big things, just as in Washington, were done behind the scenes, at dinner tables, and in private conferences. The general meetings were merely sounding boards for public opinion. One of the most interesting features was the way a delegate 
could make a speech in his own language, and others at their desks could plug in earphones and hear it simultaneously in theirs, coming from booths off stage. Delegates to our conference were all asking whether their papers were to be given in their respective tongues. I came to one swift decision to adopt the bilingual league precedent of French and English. It was simple enough to secure interpreters who were familiar with political terminology because they swarmed at Geneva, but to find those who understood scientific terms in German, Italian, Hungarian, Scandinavian, Portuguese, Greek, Spanish, Japanese, and Chinese was quite another affair. We tried to catch as many as we could passing through Geneva and hold them over during the time we needed their services. In order to facilitate matters, my husband generously financed the morning journal to be delivered on the breakfast tray of every person registered at the conference and also to members of the League of Nations. It was printed in English and French in parallel columns, containing the papers, the discussions, and any news items that might concern the delegates. Entertainment was an important feature. A series of luncheons was to be held at the restaurant Besson, with a host at each table, and daily the seating was to be rearranged so that each guest might be placed between those who spoke his own language or languages. M. Rapard was to give a reception. M. Faccio invited us on board the Montreux to visit Mademoiselle de Stahl's former home at Capet. The chief social event was the reception and dinner at Mrs. Stanley McCormick's 15th-century Chateau de Prajon at Nyon. She herself could not be there, but sent a representative from America to open it, equip it with servants, and make everything ready. Adequate handling of publicity was essential, and Albin Johnson, correspondent of the New York World, did this for me. He knew who was who, whom to avoid, and what persons would put the proper emphasis on what. He volunteered his services, but some of his assistance had to be paid. We offered expenses to all speakers and certain visitors who might later be influential in their own communities. The outpouring of money was constant, and I was not getting enough by soliciting from wealthy individuals. Consequently, giving up the villa in May, I came back to the United States to secure some from a foundation. End of Chapter 31, Part 1